It's the best part of the podcast. Scrolling through Twitter. Um, John, no audio. John, can't hear you. into a jpeg and then upload onto the site and share on social media social media social media media right let's so me okay recording i'm surprised this hasn't happened yet the people call what? it so me sojo me yeah but so me is like it's also a little joke about so, so me, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. I'm gonna start well, doing do, that. You, okay, you so me. The, right, right. You can do the intro. What? Three, two, go. Okay. So follow up, Darren. <sighs> you have to say. F you, Darren. Welcome, new listeners. I don't to, really think you do. <laughs> do you know what episode number this is? <laughs> Sixty-nine. <laughs> 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 yeah, of the Katsu Tech Pod. Uh, I'm Lee Brackett and Lawrence Caston, and I podcast with... Ah, oh, Mr. T. <laughs> um, now, John. No, the Mr. T. Mr. T. Mr. <laughs> the the sound effects, <laughs> yeah. Mr. T. Right? Yeah. You know, I said I wanted like sort of farty noises. Yeah. I'm on no, it. I'm on no. it. Okay. So the farty noises, dear listeners, none to do with me. That's all, John. Rather very silly, very childish. You let yourself down. You let me down. You let the whole podcast down. Everyone loves the farty noises. No, so, so no more farty noises. It wasn't meant to be farty noises. Gotcha. I don't know where you more farty no- <laughs> no, more farty no, noises. No, I was worried that I, you know, I tailed off towards the end. But I'll, I'll get back on that and I'll make sure there's farty noises at least. What is it? A two-minute rule on the farty noises? Yeah. Go and listen to the Dingo and the Baby section of that episode of Family Guy. Should be modelled around that. <laughs> Which are you out of Dingo and the Baby? We've discussed this before. Well, who do you, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm the intellectual one, so I'm Dingo. Okay, <laughs> that's me. fine. Yeah, I'll take the baby. <laughs> um, follow up, F you. Not more on like. white eyes. Yeah, so... <laughs> so no oh, offence to way, people that study these things, but I've had enough. <laughs> well... I made another huge mistake and huge white eye themed mistake when when I was describing what they look like and I said they've got a, like a white ring around the eye. I think I said it was a white skin ring. I don't know why I said that because that's wrong. It's actually white feathers, little white feathers in a ring. Right. In fact, that's an, that's an interesting thing about there's there's at least some birds that look like 
that look like they're weird patches of colour are bare skin. Mm-hmm. And if you look at them closely, they're not. It's like little tiny bristle-like feathers. Yeah. The classic example is Phasianus colchicus, the Eurasian or common pheasant, which has got males have got these like you know big like sort of lappets on the face, mm. and they look like you'd assume it's like velvety red skin. It's not. It's red bristles. Mm. So there you go. There you go. Every day, eh? Is that it? Um, in the we had a bit of a discussion in a recent episode, possibly last one. I can't remember about um, what names you slap on nodes as goes like the bird lineage. And I mentioned animals that were like early diverging members of the bird lineage and I listed Ginfengoptrix and mm. uh, then, I, then I realized afterwards, no, Ginfengoptrix was actually published as a bird, but it was uh, recognizable fairly early on as a uh, probably a member of the Chirodontid lineage and uh, that's been recovered in a few analyses so now that's probably not a bird but right. um but but it's part of that big story where if you go down to the the earliest parts of all those lineages the dromaeosaur lineage the truodontid one the bird lineage the oviraptorosaurs blah 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 they they're, they're kind of like you know almost as if evolution actually happened they're really samey and really yeah. hard to tell apart and as we've discussed before they can they can jump from one branch to another depending on the the sampling and the analysis and stuff yeah so, as you uh, would expect as you get more information right exactly. eventually we won't be able to tell yeah yeah you get to that stage where it's like mm, mm, yeah, according to which characters you use anyway um news from the world of news jingle news from the world of news dun, dun, dun. yep is that yeah, yeah. Done. Yeah, farty noises. No, okay, no more, no more farty noises. News from the world of news. So I'm going to I'm going to ignore what we've got in the agenda because a new paper appeared yesterday because and this is especially topical. Mm-hmm. Because in a recent episode we spoke about little vertebrates, little tetrapods, I should say, in amber because we were talking about that electric frog. Yeah. <laughs> Electro rock. Well, have you heard the newest amber amber news, John? No. Well, get hold on to your whatever the phrase is, hats mm-hmm. or buffs, I don't know. Xing leader Mike Caldwell and a list of co a list of other authors, a mid Cretaceous embryonic to neonate go on, guess. Guess which animal. Mm. Lizard. Well, kind of. Snake. Oh, okay. A mid-Cretaceous embryonic to neonate snake in amber from Myanmar. So yet another Cretaceous uh, tetrapod in amber. It's a tiny little snake. It's less than five centimetres long. It's called Shyophis myanmarensis, and it's represented by a really nice partial skeleton. And uh, it's, again, it's like the first metazoic snake from like a tropical forest environment. And uh, they say some interesting stuff in the paper about what this might mean for snake biogeography and origins. Mike Caldwell being on the authorship, they do, of course, have some stuff in there about could this be something to do with the aquatic origins of snakes, which is something that Caldwell's associated with. For those of you who don't know, there's a debate in snake evolutionary history and fossil studies as to whether snakes originated as marine animals or terrestrial burrowers. Um, 
but yeah, and there's a second specimen, which is a patch of skin. They can't be sure it's from the same animal. They guess it is because it looks like a bit of snake skin. And it's from a much larger animal, much larger as in a snake that's probably like a meter long, so not huge. Mm-hmm. So they reckon this Shyophis is like a brand new baby one. Although I'm a bit weirded out why they describe it as an embryo. Embryonic to neonate snake. Well, so where's 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 the eggshell if it's embryonic, you know? Okay, there's viviparous snakes. Okay, maybe it's a baby viviparous snake that was aborted and stuck in amber. Who knows? Weird how these things get stuck in amber. Okay, that's enough of that. Long story. What I want is a sauropod. Well, at this stage, air quotes, anything's possible. So, you know, if you've got a baby sauropod that's less than... It'd have to be like less than 20 centimetres long, wouldn't it, to get stuck in amber? But it's not impossible, so... Yeah, you might get a bit of one. Yunzi the Gibbon. Oh, we're done with that, are we? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, like two-minute rule, John. Okay. Come on. <laughs> Rules here. Uh, so this is... Oh, and I should have said that was a... Pay- uh, that was the... Shadowfist is published in Science Advances. What kind of a journal is that? Um, okay. <laughs> also in a science-themed journal about science uh-huh. called Science. New genus of extinct Holocene gibbon associated with humans in Imperial China. Sam Turvey, my good buddy, and a list of co-authors, including James Hansford, who's a former lab mate of mine at Southampton. Um, This is cool, right? So how many – there's about – I think there's – I think it's like 27 recognized ape taxa in the modern age. That's, that includes the things we call subspecies. And that sounds high because it includes, you know, there's there's a lot more gibbons than you think. Mm-hmm. And there's then you've got like, you know, you got when we're talking about taxa, there's like four or five gorillas, there's like four or five chimpanzees, there's like four or five orangutans, mm-hmm. etc. Um and how many of those have gone extinct within the Holocene? Well, so far as we know, none, right? You think of orangutans and chimps and gorillas and gibbons. A lot, we know that a lot of them are in trouble, a lot of them are in danger, but they haven't gone extinct <laughs> until now. Because this um, Turvey et al. identified in a Warring States period tomb excavated in 2004 in Shangzi in China. And a tomb possibly attributed to the, uh, Lady Xia spelled X-I-A, which I'm no doubt pronouncing it correctly, the grandmother of China's first emperor, Qin Shi Huang, which I'm also no doubt pronouncing it correctly, they found uh, a gibbon. Now, a lot of these high-status Chinese tombs have non-human animals in them, including like leopards and lynxes, cranes, um, various domestic birds and whatnot they seem to be like uh you know ceremonial gifts or something not the first time this sort of thing is on record there's in uh, machu picchu people of high status are in tombs with you know rodents and and uh, deer and stuff which is another interesting story but anyway one of the animals in this tomb is uh, a gibbon and uh, tervia tal have have demonstrated that it's a new taxon of, of gibbon and it's an extinct one we don't have any record of this animal they uh, they've called it yunzi imperialensis imper- imperialis rather it's not from the empire uh 
Oh my God, where is the the name is buried in the paper? That's weird. Yunzi Imperialis, yeah. So based on a really nice skull. Um, it's got quite an unusual face compared to other gibbons. And in morphometrics, it plots distinctly. It really does. It appears to be most similar to Simon gibbons. But, um, and incidentally, it's got awesome grooves on its canines, which is relevant to stuff we've written about in the past. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, canine grooves in, in primates and how canine grooves don't necessarily have anything to do with venomosity, something that's been explored by various authors, including Sam Turvey at times. Um, yeah, so this is a gibbon that was alive in the... Uh, I think we're talking about like 15th century or thereabouts. The Shu dynasty. Now, that's like 1st century. But because they because there's like a whole bunch of stuff that happened, a whole load of animals that became super rare or extinct, uh, big mammals in um, this, this region of China, uh, like round about uh, during like quite recently, like 1700s, they reckon it's, they would say it's possible that this animal could have persisted. It could have persisted until far more recently but we just don't know about it because the record is so bad um so that's that's all in the paper there's quite a lot of discussion about gibbon decline in china over the last several centuries and yunzi could be part of that difficult to say when we've only got this one specimen so far so that's quite exciting and you know the the evidence that we're in this in a sixth megafauna a sixth mass extinction is pretty good and I I think it's well. I don't think. I mean, I'm not the only one. It's been said by many times. It's looking likely that we've totally underestimated the number of extinctions in continental environments as well as island ones that have happened within the last few centuries. Yeah. Like the story. First of all, they discovered that you know basically every single island assemblage in the world. It turned out that you know these places are tens to hundreds of endemic animals that were made extinct by people like within the last say two thousand years. Then it turned out that continental places, Australia is the best known one. They people European explorers thought that that they thought there were maybe one or two animals that had gone extinct within recent times and then it turns out no there was like a whole assemblage of like mid-sized rodents and marsupials and things that have been killed off you know within like i say the last last couple of thousand years so and i think that i i, I think that story is going to turn out to yeah grow. i obviously i agree with the overall theme there that we are causing extinctions you would expect it right i mean how much of the how much uh, land is left for wilderness? It's surprisingly mm. small percentage. Um, but do we really know the background rate? Oh, I suppose we do. <laughs> but it's a bit biased. We don't really know exactly how many animals lived in the past and how many go, ex- go extinct. It could be more churn than we realised, so it's hard to pick well, that out, especially if you're going back a couple of thousand years or something. Yeah, right. I think there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of like you know appropriate caveats on this. But even mm-hmm. when you take this into account, I think based on the data we have, I think it's uh it's pretty clear that the extinction rate is. Uh, it would well be utter, ex- utterly extraordinary if it wasn't. As I say, we've destroyed most of the yeah. world's habitats. How could it possibly uh-huh. not be? <clears throat> mm. <laughs> Okay, so that that is a. I mean, we we have touched on this before. We've touched on Pleistocene Holocene extinctions. You could do a whole discussion of that, but we won't today. Uh, moving on, the other new paper. So, so I think last time we spoke about was it last time we were talking about 
hominins a bit. Yep. I've, I've forgotten why. Why? Yeah, why? Why are we talking Gate. hominins? Excuse me. Gate. What? Locomotion. We're oh, about- right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking there's some kind of there's some kind of like scandal. Scandal in yeah. the world of hominins. No, obviously there is. Oh, hominin gate. Those sticky hominin workers, or hominin workers, whatever. But <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so okay, gibbons. They're hominoids, but not hominids. So yeah. let's now talk about hominins again. So they're within hominoids. There's the hominids. Within hominids, there's the hominines, and within hominines, there's the hominins, which is the human lineage that also includes Australopithecines. Now, there's a paper, which I don't have in front of me because I'm not clever enough to have opened it. Maybe I should actually go and find the reference. Uh, it's Shu, Z-H-U. Hold on, I'm just waiting for nature to open it. Okay, Xiao Yu Shu et al., just published in Nature, hominin occupation of the Chinese lowest plateau since about 2.1 million years ago. Now, do you remember last time um, I said that there is a, uh, an increased tendency to restrict the term human to homo sapiens and yep. to not use it for other hominins? This paper is this that issue is directly relevant to this paper. So this paper is all about the discovery of uh, stone tools that, so far as we can tell, are pretty much definitely made by hominins, and they are from 2.1 million years ago. Uh, so what is that? Is that, is that early early Pleistocene or late? I think that puts it in. That's actually late Pliocene. I think that's Galician, the last part of the Pliocene. And uh, they're saying that this demonstrates that hominins were out of Africa by the late Pliocene. Previous, well, it's, it's typically said that previously the oldest out of non-African hominin bearing sites, the Menisi in Georgia, which is one point. Oh no 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 no! Don't say, don't say numbers when I haven't got them in front of me. Okay, but which is not always said to be the oldest. I think it's like about mm-hmm. one point. I think it's about one point seven meg anna. One point one point seven million years ago. Uh, there's now a couple of Chinese sites that are older than that. They're you know around about two to maybe even two and a half million years ago. So there you go. Hominins definitely are out of Africa. I think there's there's really we still have to work on that. There's really good evidence the hominins are ancestrally African, but they got out of Africa, got into Eurasia, you know, late Pliocene, early Pleistocene. Now, there's – so there you go. That's, that's, the, that's the novelty of this study. The dis- this discovery implies that hominins left Africa earlier than indicated by the evidence from Dimenisi, they say in the abstract here. But there's a bunch of articles online which basically say, wow, our whole story of human evolution is more complicated. Humans – are this kind of messy patchwork of lots of things, you know, lots of populations cobbling themselves together, right? And immediately, this is where it comes back to that debate about what do we mean by the term human. I think people are either confusing or are not making it clear the difference between humans, as in Homo sapiens, and hominins generally. Yeah. Because... So we've known for a long time now, a couple of decades, based on the Georgian stuff, that uh, hominins were in Eurasia, like I say, by about you know 1.7 million years ago. 
now it seems to be a bit older than that um so is that directly relevant to the origin of homo sapiens because that's the point people are writing about it as if this is relevant to the origin of homo sapiens mm-hmm. it might be given that we've got this evidence for you know, hybridization all this sort of mess, messy patchwork stuff going on maybe it is but it also might not be because we're talking about lineages that are not ancestral to homo sapiens and might not be directly relevant to the ancestry of homo sapiens yeah. so i would say at the moment it seems like homo erectus grade hominins because the thing called homo erectus is clearly clearly a grade it's a whole bunch of different lineages from the same section of the tree um it seems they got out of africa between you know 2.5 and 1.6 million years ago ish and did all kinds of did all kinds of things in eurasia and no doubt did all kinds of things in africa as well um and then it's a, a later point more recently the homo sapiens got out of africa seemingly like around about you know i don't know 300,000 years ago so that's my point i think people yeah. can that people have mixed up two different things and that's why it's important to what to state exactly what you mean by the term human the paper yeah. itself incidentally does not use the term human it talks all the time about hominins it doesn't call these things humans mm-hmm. so Yeah, I accept that. That's a good uh, rebuttal of using human for these things because I think it is confusing. Because this is the standard story. This is nothing new, right? We've known for a long time that these Homo erectus grade things made it out earlier than what we caught, think of as modern anatomical humans and spread around and did their thing, right? This is interesting in that it pushes it back further in a different place maybe, but it's not, yeah, as you say, mm. it's not actually a change in the story. No. Um, yeah. Okay, I will accept that rebuttal of uh, calling these things human. I think I'm that's not sure. A, well, yeah, I, I, I think it, no, but I think that's a good. That's a, it. It does bring up a confused notion in people's heads, and I think that is yeah. Yeah, I, I've I'll seen some high-profile. Okay, cool. Well, I see some high-profile science tweeters and bloggers do do these articles where they say, "Oh my god, everything about human evolution is more complicated." It's like, no, it's not. You've just you've just pushed back the out of africanness of lineages that aren't necessarily relevant. I'm repeating myself. Mm-hmm. I'm repeating myself. Okay, move on. Right. Uh, there's lo- there's loads more science stuff to talk about, but we're going to do the part of news from the world of news that's the book part because mm-hmm. there's a couple of books I want to talk about. Um, oh, I got a book. I got a book. Okay. I'm going to go get a book and show it to you as well. Go on then. All right, hang on. <laughs> so, we're cleaning Smart. out, uh, you know, uh, Jenny's mother is moving out of Painswick. And so I, we, I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, sad. Sold the house. So, we're going through the attic. Mm. And I found this. The Big Book of Lions. The, pitic- the Pictorial Museum of Animated Nature. Ooh. And looking at the inside... It's just full of thousands and thousands of these really nice pictures of animals. And I looked this up online. It lists its author in some places as Charles Knight. No. And I I meant to look this up before I talked on the podcast today because I wanted to make sure what that's about. But it doesn't have an author on it, and it's nowhere in the text. It's nowhere to be found. Which is really mm-hmm. odd. But odd. online, it's it's listed often as 
the Pictorial Museum of Animated Nature, Charles Knight. Well, well, well. Is it valuable? No. Which is interesting. It's uh, <laughs> so they must have made a lot of them because it's only you get it on eBay for thirty-two pounds. But presumably, all that stuff's out of copyright. Yes. And there's a ton of good, good-looking stuff in there. Oh, it's it's beautiful. I mean, yeah. So if you could scan it and bung me a PDF, that'd be really handy. Thanks. <laughs> and well, it's, it's, it's probably most probably mostly online already. I, I wonder. I mean, I recognise some of those bat pictures you just showed me. Maybe it's got like interesting things like comparative drawings of the same bit of anatomy and stuff like this. It's really, yes. Are there not drawings in it? What's that? They're illustrations by Knight himself. Here's the thing. They could be. I can't say for sure. There's well, tell so me what you see. Cause I, I know, well, I know a lot of his pictures of dogs and tigers and elephants and pandas and stuff. So Yeah, so there's a colour one ne- at the front. Um, okay, so here's some... Here's his for those cats. who know Charles Knight as a... Yeah, none of those are his. Yeah. See, I think there's too many here for them all to have been illustrated by one person. And some of them are... Some of the drawings are beautiful and well done, and some of them are a bit crazy and goofy. I mean, look at that cheetah. I can't yeah. believe that they're by the same person. No, no, definitely not. No, they're and obviously, li- obviously just coupled together. And there's literally thousands and thousands of illustrations in here. Mm. Do you think that's a knight? That is definitely not a Charles Knight, no. Plus he signed everything. Yeah, so it's interesting. I wonder why it's listed as Charles Knight. He wrote Chaz in big letters in the corner. Chaz. Chazza. Two Zs. Or Zs, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> and a little smiley. Um, he, he actually didn't. I was joking about that. Um, yeah, for those of you who know that Charles Knight, as a, an illustrator of dinosaurs and prehistoric mammals, he, he did those things, but he also did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of illustrations of uh, living animals, and he wrote whole books on how to draw living animals did loads of you know dogs and zoo animals and things and and that art is actually mostly better than his um uh paleo art yeah yeah he was for some reason he threw out a lot of knowledge about anatomy and stuff yeah um I, i think i suppose people know his dinosaurs best but his dinosaurs are technically by far his weakest works yeah his dinosaurs are really bad they're, they're kind of like really cartoony proportions are totally off compared to his other animals his his mammals and stuff are really good yeah okay well, i like this really arctic fox oh that's quite looks weird. nothing like an arctic <laughs> fox but it's a nice picture it's like a made-up yeah. animal <laughs> tiny pointed face so that was pretty okay. weird, random find in someone's attic. I mean, she's not into zoology or in particular or anything like that. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, all right. Okay, well, moving on. Um, so I've published a few things over the years on Cadborosaurus. Do you know what Cadborosaurus I is? I sure do. What is it, John? It's a moose-headed eel thing found in Lake Cadboro. Is that how you say it? Cadboro? Well, Cad- Cad- it's, not, it's not a lake. Cad- Cadboro Bay. Is it? Is- oh, I thought it was a lake. Yeah. No, North Pacific, um, and and two scientists, Paul LeBlond and the late Ed Boosfield, uh, made a case for this being like a real animal, and that there was an alleged carcass for it. And uh, myself and colleagues have actually been in sort of like a scientific uh, toing and froing over the years with Boosfield and LeBlond, where we basically think that the evidence is, to sit politely, 
uh, not that good. And the <laughs> I was gonna, I was going to be really rude, but I won't. Um, I think the eyewitness encounters refer to as ty- as typically with with monsters, and I say this in my book, Hunting Monsters, published by Arcturus Press, twenty seventeen, available at very reasonable price of us. I think seven ninety nine. Um, if you buy enough of them, they'll do a follow up volume. I think the sightings are like amorphous things like people seeing waves and floating logs as well as sightings of swimming deer and pinnipeds. Mm. Definitely a whole bunch of the sightings are elephant seals. And then this carcass, I think, is a carcass of a known animal. I think it's most likely a sturgeon or a decomposing shark. And an alleged baby specimen is almost certainly a misidentified pipefish, as Cameron McCormick, Michael Woodley and myself argued in a a paper that we published a few years back. Um, so Ed Boosfield is is uh, no longer with us. I think he died uh, within the last couple of years. Um, corresponded with him regularly, sort of had a, like, friendly arguments all the time. But Paula Blonde, John Kirk, who's well known uh, British Columbia-based writer on mystery animals, and a guy I haven't heard of before, Jason Walton. They published a new book on Cadborosaurus. It's called Discovering Cadborosaurus by Hancock House. Pub- Hancock House publishes a lot of these little cryptid books. And it's it's a small softback book and it's it's quite nicely illustrated. Look, just get a sample of like loads of pictures. Yep. Loads of pictures. And a, a nice colour plate section with uh I like this piece of art. Look at that. That's what Cadbrosaurus is meant to look like. Mm. Oh, look at those ears. Yeah. Those floppy lappet things. Um Basically, this book rehashes what Boosford and Blonde did in their previous book, which is called Cadborosaurus. And and I thought, wow, but it's gonna like it's gonna update the science. It's gonna update what they've said about Cadborosaurus. Bear in mind, you know, we've got biologists here. These the, at least one of these guys is a professional biologist. The authors, um, where they're saying this is a real animal and a case can be made for it. So, wow, they're gonna have some new science. And I'm afraid at the moment, I'm not convinced that they do. It looks like it rehashes the same old stuff mm-hmm. again and again. Um, and I thought also, oh, they're going to discuss this toing and froing that I just mentioned. Do they? Do they discuss the toing and froing? No, they don't. They do cite uh, tetrapod zoology, and they do talk about the pipefish paper that Woodley and myself and McCormick published. They literally, they literally like have it as a one-liner. They say, "Oh, those guys said it's a pipefish." Yeah, whatever. And then, <laughs> and then move on. Moving on. There we go. Which is funny because Ed Boosford was really like aggressively against it. Oh, uh, is, is it worth my time trying to find the find the actual? Here we go. Here, here we go. Here we go. Um, all they say is, <laughs> without citing us, it is not, however, impossible that over the years Hagelin's memory might have been, might have transformed a pipefish into the sketch that he drew from memory, because because Hagland drew that yeah and we argued that he might actually have encountered that these aren't these diagrams are nothing to do with us but there, there you go okay so discovering cadbrosaurus if you're interested in sea monsters and cryptids and whatnot cryptozoology um do you remember at tezuhikon last year we had a talk from ben garrod mm-hmm. who's you know Ben, Ben's got like a PhD in primatology. He's very good on anatomy. He did the secrets, the secret of bones TV sh- series. I think. I don't know if it was a one-off or a series. I haven't seen it to be honest. But um, uh, Ben 
has just got look these books out Shpling. oh wow so you think you know about dot 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 dinosaurs question mark so far there's a triceratops one mm-hmm. there's a diplodocus one and a tyrannosaurus rex one not just any old tyrannosaurus but the tyrannosaurus rex the rex one and yeah they're small compact like books done for uh done for kids and they're pretty good no i mean look at this again a nice sort of picture to text mm-hmm. ratio loads of pictures and the pictures include uh cartoons by our good friend ethan kosak oh, yeah. aka the black mud puppy i believe he does a he's involved in a podcast but i wouldn't know <laughs> and um the cover art is done by gabriel guito who you might also have heard of. I think I think he also does a podcast again, yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. And um look at that. Inflatable nose balloons in the Triceratops one. <laughs> Whose idea is that? Huh? Yeah, that's my idea. Yeah, John's idea. It's so <laughs> stupid. You and your stupid fake science ideas. Yeah. So these books are nice. They're pretty much, you know, they're, they're, they're good and they're sort of like, wow, there's all this, the world of dinosaurs is quite interesting and crazy. And it looks like there's another three that are going to appear on Spinosaurus, Velociraptor and Stegosaurus. So that's a plug for those. I'll be reviewing all this stuff on the blog, incidentally. Finally, Gaffer Mondo, a.k.a. Gareth Monger, our friend. Have you seen this, John? No, I haven't a seen dis- it. A disarray of paleo art. So... <laughs> Is this the golden age of books on paleo art? And this is a, it's an all yesterday's size and style of softback book. And it's, <laughs> it's a weird collection of kind of like little cartoons and sketches mm. that, um, that sort of explore like fun possibilities and ideas. There's a dromaeosaur clinging to a tree. Um, there's, I don't know, there's a baryonyx about to surprise a hypsilophodon. Uh, there's, <laughs> here's some Jurassic World love. <laughs> Riffing on the, the frog DNA thing, which I, I don't they didn't actually had that in Jurassic World. I think in Jurassic World they deliberately said that they were using bird DNA. Uh, and that is what sauropods think of pterosaurs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, there's some good stuff in here. So yeah, if you like paleo good. art, a Disarray of Paleo Art by Gareth Monger, published by Lulu. Yep, published by Gareth. Gareth. Um, and there's a bunch of other... Oh, Jesus, there's so many new books I've got. That, that We'll stop there, we'll stop there. Um, okay, we've got a cash okay. question, is that right? Yeah, and guess what Dr. Genius Pants here did? <laughs> I, I Deleted don't, I don't it? I it. No, I don't have it with me. Again? Is this the one that's been kicking around for weeks and no, 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 every no. time the we go to record? Did we do that one already? <clears throat> we did that one. You're talking about the one from... That was from Albert. Okay. Well, I've got to find it. It's somewhere in my Patreon messages. As we've both said before, the problem with the modern age is that you, you might just about remember a question that's a message. Is it in your emails? Is it in your Twitter messages? Is it in your Facebook messages? Yeah. Is it on Patreon? You know, and, okay, it's from David Eden, who's been a long-time supporter of myself at uh, Patreon. Thanks, David. And David's question is, and, and by the way, just should say that we 
technically aren't still doing cash for questions, but I'm I'm still having them via my Patreon because it's like a perk for my patrons, which I hope is acceptable. Cape Buffalo are reputed to be particularly... Why am I asking your permission if it's acceptable? <laughs> you, it's my podcast. <laughs> okay, consider me told. <laughs> I didn't say anything. No, I just... I'll throw that out. Cape <laughs> yeah. Buffalo, Buffalo are reputed to be particularly aggressive compared to other bovines and have apparently never been domesticated. Do you think this reputation is based on real behavioural differences in comparison with other wild bovines? What do you think, John? I had no <laughs> idea. You had me well, at bovines. This is one of those things where there are things that haven't happened just because they haven't happened. And there's like, there's not, I don't think it's easy to find like a good reason as to, so, so, so theoretically, right? Theoretically, you could say people could have domesticated Cape Buffalo. They could have domesticated zebras and giraffes and hippos, all kinds of stuff, right? But they just didn't because they were busy doing other stuff. And I reckon that just because people domesticated other bovines, namely Uruk, as we discussed a couple of episodes back at some length, I think, um, because they domesticated that animal doesn't mean that they that there were like attempts to domesticate the others. I don't think I don't think anyone ever thought, let's look at Cape Buffalo and we should domesticate them. What was it about Boss Primogenius slash Boss Boss Taurus that led people to domesticate it? Uh, on possibly two or three separate occasions in Eurasia and Africa. Um, well, maybe it is. Maybe that species is less aggressive and more easily. Oh, Jesus, how, how does how does domestication start in the first place? This is always the the great um the great mystery. So, yeah, I would think that. I haven't, I haven't, I clearly haven't looked into this. I haven't like come up with some, you know, some some relevant facts here. But I reckon because people uh, have, have had, you know, domestic uruk, mm-hmm. domestic cattle as a thing for thousands of years, there was never any push within um, culturally recent times for people to look at another species and say, "Well, we need to domesticate those," because by then they already had these other domesticated cattle. But it could also be that. As a particular, as a particularly formidable and well-armed species, maybe they didn't, they didn't want to, they weren't able or weren't thinking of domesticating Cape buffalo. But on the other hand, <laughs> are you telling me that you would look at an uruk and why well, wouldn't you look at an uruk and say the same thing? I'm not going near that. It's got a six foot tall at the shoulder and it's got you know meter long horns. I, I, mm. Yeah, so obviously I think chance plays a role. Right. Yeah. Just maybe people did try a couple. Like, okay, maybe people tried all over the place to domesticate all sorts of animals, and some got lucky, and others didn't. Um, and it's really just chance. But I'm sure that the temperament of the creature goes in with it as well. I, I don't. I guess I feel like it's more that angle, right? That people tried domesticating all sorts of animals, and some of them just had a small difference, or it was just lucky rather than that we're partic- picking particular animals and trying really hard to domesticate that animal. Right? Mm. Mm. Like, they weren't... You know, we want a big land animal for whatever reason. Pulling things, 
um, herding him around for meat, uh, you know, any, any sort of things we do with domesticated animals. But, you know, you look at a lot of them and think, well, a lot of them would probably do if we could get this thing going. And I, yeah. I, I suspect that it's not targeted and that this one's got features we particularly need. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know about that. But that's just a guess. I mean, and I don't know enough about the lifestyle of these people to understand what sorts of things they'd be looking for, right? Oh, that's the next thing I was going to say. You, you also have to know a lot about the human history <laughs> yeah. in the specific region where this animal occurs. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't know that. I, you have to go and find that out. Because is it like people have only recently moved into the area where these animals are? Is it that the people that live in the area where this species is aren't people that have... Oh, I don't even want to discuss that without looking at it. Because, of course, immediately I'm thinking there are lots of East African people that are nomadic pastoralists that uh, rely on cattle, for example. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, but then but then, what's their history? You know, Where did those people come from? Because... Jesus, there's so much movement all over the place of uh, the different peoples. But I think this is similar to the question of why didn't X evolve into yeah, yeah. X niche. Yeah. And I think it's just partly... It just didn't. It just didn't because there there's already something there, right? I do think that mm. is right. I think that once you've domesticated some sort of large land animal, the pressure to do so with something else is so much less. Because right? once you've domesticated it, you've started to selective mm. features it's actually mm. better than wild animals um you know it's just pressure on the humans to go out and try and domesticate something else is it becomes greatly greatly reduced yeah which i think is why we okay. essentially settled on what yeah a small section of animals and they're domesticated in different parts of the world probably so <laughs> a lot of people probably settled on two right dogs and some sort of you know, sheep or cow thing. Plus a chickeny type thing. Plus a chickeny. Or a chicken. Yeah. Or, or, a, or a chicken. Or a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> Actual chicken. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yep. So, yeah. So I think we're along the same lines there. Uh, so shrug. <laughs> um, and to, the, to those familiar with it, yes, yes, we are aware of uh, Jared Diamond's guns, germs and steel because he, he makes the same, he makes a very similar point that, um, that there are certain animals that you might predict people could have domesticated, but they just didn't because they just didn't. And maybe, yeah, maybe because they had so vague, <laughs> wishy-washy. <laughs> but thanks, David, for the question, uh, and I hope that was hope that little discussion was. I don't know. I don't want to say useful because it wasn't. But um, all right. Um, um, main event. Yeah. Well, I thought that um, what with stuff that's been covered on Touchable Zoology, which is all linked to... Okay, so I've written an article about speculative zoology, which uh, is the... Um, it's basically the script of a discussion that I had with Asher Elbin about um sorry if i'm i don't know how to pronounce your surname asher sorry elbine i don't know but um yeah we had a discussion about speculative zoology that's that's off the back of the brand new republishing of dougal dixon's after man which has just been republished by breakdown press and and i thought that that it's an interesting thing to discuss speculative zoology mm-hmm. Uh, you know something about it. I've written about it quite a lot, probably too much. 
It's and it's timely at the moment because of the release of uh, the 2018 republication of After Man, which first appeared in 1981. And of course, the ad there's currently um, uh, we're currently doing the advertising for the Dougal Dixon event, which is happening in I think it's September the 11th um, at Conway Hall, where uh, Dougal and I are um, having like a discussion on stage about. Um, you know about the book and mm-hmm. his ideas and everything. So, so yeah, I just thought let's talk about some speculative Zorg stuff because I think people like it. Yep. So what? Do you, how, be- yeah. What? Do you, how do you want to go with a bit of history of speculative zoology? Some people following you probably don't know very much about it, right? Possibly. Well, if I've, I would think that anyone that reads the blog is probably familiar with it because I feel like I've done it to death. I gave a talk about it at the very first TetsuCon. Mm-hmm. The whole history of speculative zoology, and uh, I, uh, as a kind of promotional thing for TetsuCon, I tweeted like a hundred tweets, you know, like a thread about it, uh, probably like about a week ago. So, but yeah, just the whole. Well, I don't know. There's like, what do we do? We could do like the whole thing, or just bits of it, or I'm sure people would want something that involves. You've done some speculative zoology stuff. Uh, I think yeah. I think you should give like a little history of uh, speculative zoology, just like quite short, like who sort of first did it and what the main main events have been over the last. Well, wh- who was the first speculative zoologist? Do you think? Okay, well, um, okay. There, there's there's a larger discussion to be had about what do we mean by speculative zoology, mm-hmm. because if it's the I think I think you have to say um, to begin with that it is specifically the creation of imaginary animals, and they have to be animals. Uh, animal is like a specific group of organisms. It doesn't just mean anything that you know, because like a lot of aliens and stuff like look like animals, but technically they're not part of. I sort of want to mostly exclude aliens from it, you see, because mm-hmm. otherwise, because if you start talking about imaginary aliens, Jesus Christ, you know, where do you end on that? And it also just can't be any old imaginary animals because we know that people have been inventing animals for reasons of like sticking them on maps and, you know, mythological stories that people have been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. So spec zoo has to be creatures that are they're like they're specifically animals. They're from alternative timelines or the future and they have evolved they are within the context of you know how we understand the natural world so you want to exclude things that were put on maps made up animals yeah even though people might have sort of thought they were making well you know i guess maybe they thought they were real sea chickens and stuff right yeah but were they uh, this is this is like this is what I went into into the talk I did. You know what what are the boundaries of speculative zoology because it's very fuzzy. And you're right, immediately it's hard to say um, which of those should and should not be included with, within within subject. And my th- my thinking at the moment is that we should go with what when people talk about the subject today, what do they mean? They are talking about um, things that have evolved in the future or alternative timelines. Mm-hmm. Whereas I. You're talking about like sea monsters on old maps, sea chickens and <laughs> sea horses and whatnot. Uh, this is relevant to something we covered way, way back on a, an episode. Who knows which one? I don't bloody know. Um, they weren't creatures that were thought to have evolved. They were thought to be creatures that j- just exist because that's the way the world was made. Mm. Uh, whereas I think if you take it from like 
Dixon's uh, Dougal Dixon's books of the 1980s and 90s um, it's obvious that you are talking about you know animals that have got an evolutionary backstory and in that case the first person to really do it is H.G. Wells in uh, the time machine uh, 18 is 1896 the time machine Um, it's republished many times yes Yeah, it's, it's initially published as, I think, a, a novella and then a series of short stories and then a longer book, I, I think. I forget exactly, but it makes it difficult to pin it down. And then not only does he have the, the is it the Eloy and the Morlocks? Yeah. I, I so often get it wrong. He clearly is talking about organisms that have evolved in the future. And in the time machine, there's there's like an, an even further future beyond that time where he talks about other uh, other future organisms like crab-like organisms and stuff that he sees and Dougal Dixon told me that, that and there's an interview with Dougal Dixon that's published uh, Tetrapod Zoology a couple of years back where um yeah he said that was his inspiration for during the 80s thinking that um that this was a thing that he could do and yeah he could create like a whole world of speculative creatures so you got H.G. Wells basically comes up with this idea to start with. Edgar Rice Burroughs writes a loads of loads of fiction that sort of is along the same line. Some of it could be considered speculative zoology. And then you've got several projects uh, from the 1930s uh, onwards that uh, talk about imaginary creatures, and they could be within the same the same genre. Like I say, it's all a bit fuzzy, and you could make a, a specific argument that they aren't technically in the same vein as After Man. Uh, but then, like, roundabout, you know, so Afterman is published in 1980. As I said, Dixon is inspired by H.G. Wells. Russell's Dinosauroid, which is an alternative timeline, you know, uh, dinosaur that comes from a timeline where, where the end Cretaceous extinction event hasn't happened. That is definitely speculative zoology. Uh, and an interesting story there. I've written extensively about uh, the whole meme of big-brained, smart, alternative timeline dinosaurs. Some of them are really, really terrible, and uh, some of them are okay. That's pretty. That's fairly plausible. I can believe that if you look at the evolution of birds, because a lot of it initially comes from people who don't just aren't really considering birds as part of the equation. So Russell's original dinosauroid, this basically you know lizard man creature, yeah, that's meant uh, meant to have evolved from Stenonychosaurus or Truodon, as it was known, well as it's been known over the years. Currently, currently, Stenonychosaurus again. Um, <laughs> Taxonomy, huh? So stable. <laughs> That's uh, what happens when you name things for, for teeth. Yep. <clears throat> and um, then refer it. Like, mm. Yeah, so that's in the 80s as well, isn't it? So it's sort of like yeah. a bit of a explosion of this stuff. I know it's only two things, but they, they were both pretty high profile, weren't they? I mean, I'm sure there are other things then as well, but both these things were high profile and talked about quite a bit. I came across a, both of them and had them in my house, you know, even though I wasn't specifically looking for that sort of thing. The the, the dinosauroid, again, could talk about this for, for, for so, so many tangents to this. The dinosauroid is quite probably part of or even the genesis of the whole lizard man thing which has become part of cryptozoological law and also conspiracy theory alien bs stuff about like you know oh jesus david ike's uh the queen is a lizard shifting 
Yeah, Lizard. I think I think it goes back to to Russell's dinosauroid. For those who don't know, Russell's dinosauroid is transparently based on the idea that humans are the best animals in the cosmos. Humans are the best animals to, to ever evolve. So he. With all due respect to him, he justified it by saying, oh, it would make sense if a big-brained dinosaur did this, like, you know, became plantigrade. It makes sense. And it makes sense if it evolved with a parity. And it would make sense if it had, like, you know, opposable thumbs and all this kind of stuff. That would, those, those would all make sense. But he clearly, in many times in interview, has said that the human shape has a special place in the universe. It's part of God's plan. They, uh, Russell is, is quite religious. And... Um, that, that 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 it's inevitable that you know that smart dinosaurs would would evolve like humans, and so would smart shrews or smart sea slugs. You know, they would become <laughs> they would become humanoid. And this is this this um what do you call it? This baton has been picked up by Simon Conway Morris, who in his book it might be in Crucible of Creation or it might be oh the other one. Yeah, Simon Conway Morris has got some weird like. No disrespect to religious people, but it's clearly motivated by a, a religious belief that the human the human design is the best one, d- guided by the creator, and the creator's real. Yeah, I think this is... I'm not tremendously familiar with this kind of stuff, but it's a funny notion that our general shape is the important thing, rather than all the other stuff, you know, our deep evolutionary history, our... Um, biochemistry yeah. and all this stuff, all yeah. the things that make us mammals. No, no, no. What's important is we walk upright yeah, and have plantigrade feet. Yeah. Well, it's sort of an odd way to think, I think, that just sort of <coughs> the general form of something is, is special. Because, mm. mm. okay, so if you take the religious aspect out of that, you know, the uh, progressive notions and that sort of stuff, I do think it is an interesting uh, thought experiment and a way to get people talking about it is to show, well, would dinosaurs have evolved in... Are we an optimal shape for what we do, right? And is this sort of like... Is it something like the, you know, the the shape of swimming animals in that you do end up with a similar shape often from different starting yeah, points yeah. because it yeah. is a good shape for doing what that thing does. And I do think that it, there is... There are some interesting little bits there that mm. uh, I can see, well, you know, maybe, maybe there's certain arguments that uh, dinosaurs could have ended up looking more human if they started to have more human-like behavior. Uh, I don't actually think so, but it's certainly worth considering. It's a good, it's good use of speculative zoology, right, I think. I agree, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> it's just... Yeah, when you get funny <laughs> motivations around these sorts of things. Although I think that's also interesting in that it brings it out more, doesn't it? Speculative zoology brings this stuff out. If you're thinking about how things evolve and why they evolve, why they do, rather than just looking and stating how things did evolve, it brings out yeah. your philosophies about what evolution is for what it is there for if you have such philosophies right yeah yeah i i would agree with that um on on a uh 
I don't know what the right term is. I want to say mechanistic. I'm not sure if that's the right term. But on a, on a term of like how literally how the evolution, how they how they justified this this uh, this uh, conclusion yeah. that this humanoid shape is air quotes best. Um, it's like that's clearly arguable because. Well, you know, this is really basic stuff. It's like, you know, we've got a, we've got a sample size of one <laughs> for a, a big brain intelligent biped. Okay, well, technically not true, of course, because there's lots of primates that are very similar to us. But it's clear that our shape is due to our primate heritage, you know, loads of things like our limb proportions and the design of our hands and feet and the shape of our bodies and shape of our shape of our chest, this weird thing where we're quite wide across the shoulders and narrow on you know narrow front to back those are all weird things to do with our specific evolutionary history and when you think about other groups that could have evolved big brains if they're big brain fish or big brain birds or big brain lizards um why would they be shaped like a human and clearly in virtually all cases they they wouldn't be so if you evolve you know this this argument's been made many times i've, I've written about it on tetrapod zoology if you did evolve a big brained dinosaur then it would be a horizontal-bodied animal that's got dexterous forelimbs, presumably, or a dexterous mouth, presumably, and there isn't the push for you to have, you know, this weird human human stuff. You know, why would you have plantigrade feet? Why would you have the, you know, wide, weird wide hips we've got? Why would you have this shape of chest? Blah 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 blah. You just you just wouldn't. And of course, you you could say that the argue, the experiment already has been run because there are big brain dinosaurs that overlap in brain size with primates of course there are crows and parrots some parrots do have uh, brain sizes that that overlap um literally for similar sized animals but also proportionally they do overlap precisely with with primates you know they fit on the same yeah, same straight line of the graph, and are they shaped like humans? Well, of course not. They're shaped like birds. So, I think the very foundation of the idea is flawed. Then you find out that the philosophy behind it is, with all due respect, because this is like a very personal thing, you find that the philosophy behind it is flawed. And as I say, Russell says in interviews, this, these weird things that he says dinosaurs are crude and mammals are beautiful and humans have a special place in the universe it's like you're allowed to hold those views if you want those are your personal views but they seem very weird to me to justify scientifically whatever wherever you stand on issues of faith and you know your what you think about how the universe is created and gods and all that kind of stuff um and we know also that kind of a sad story that dale russell was almost ashamed of this stuff because he he, he was criticized for it and stopped talking about it and basically bowed out of the whole discussion mm. so i know that in recent years people have tried to talk to him about it and he won't he won't he, he sort of like gently sort of pushes them out the door and say yeah see you later <laughs> yeah out my office right and also he stopped going to conferences and everything because he was so criticized for the dinosauroid whereas i'm thinking if you were really if you know come on if you if you come up with a controversial idea and you think you could, and you think it's justifiable you've got to stick with it seems to me he didn't think it was justifiable yeah i don't i don't know his history but um i think that's a shame uh because i do think it was interesting to talk about um and also i think i guess as sort of side note dale russell had tremendous taste in uh employing artists uh-huh. and um so he was um, 
famously employed and directed Ellie Kish, who did yeah. a huge number of really beautiful dinosaur paintings under his direction. And um, this model by Ron Seguin, is that how you say it? Is that how you'd say it? Yes, Seguin or Seguin, I don't actually Seguin. know. Because yeah. uh, there's a weird accent in there Yeah, somewhere. yeah. Um, but he's... Uh, oh God, I can't say Steny Onkosaurus. Steny Onkosaurus? Stenonychosaurus. Well, it might be Stenonychosaurus. Steno is narrow, isn't it? Look, Stenonychosaurus. Stenonychosaurus. I don't really care as long as it flows. Okay, I'm going to go Latini with Stenonychosaurus. Latini Venetrix, so that's much easier. Stenonychosaurus. You know, some of the some of this stuff is now Latini Venetrix. It's like a, another, a new taxon. Great. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the model of that is beautiful. The dinosauroid is really nice. It's a beautiful model. And it... Um, I think this is partly why it gained so much traction, right? Because it looks real. Um, and I guess the uh, part of the reason it's seeped into popular culture and the whole aliens thing, you know, if you look it up on Google, it comes up under aliens all the time. People are talking about aliens. Is because it's the most believable looking sort of notion we have about these things. Um, yeah. I could believe that's a real creature, even though I don't think that's what dinosaurs would have looked like. And we actually know much more about dinosaurs and their body coverings and things like this now. And it's not very realistic, but... It looks like a smart lizard. It could be a big lizard. It could be a big lizard, yeah. <clears throat> it's really um, it's really good. Um, and I think Russell did like great things for paleontology in this respect. A, like really interesting aesthetic approach to the whole thing which a lot of other paleontologists <laughs> don't have. <laughs> I would agree. He said that it came out, the model and the associated press interests came out at the same time as um, E.T., the movie E.T., oh. and that some people like linked it with that. They thought that it was sort of a vision of the same kind of thing. And there's loads of little details. I love some of the, I've written, again, I've written about this specifically, some of the anatomical details are really like subtle and nice. So there's an assumption, for example, that you think of its feet, it's plantigrade, it puts its ankle on the ground like a human. Uh, there's, there's drawings that have just shown it with like, three-toed tridactyl feet but if you actually look at its feet it's got like the digits one and two are atrophied and like a little sort of nubbins and most of the weight is born on three four and five which and is that they actually looked at tree kangaroo feet to like get that right that's a really nice detail the way they constructed the eyes you know they looked at gecko eyes and they have this technique of using like a glass transparent anterior section with yeah. like a resin filled bit at the back you know all those kinds of things uh, it has a navel and they he explained that as a justification for viviparity, although that doesn't work because oviparous animals still have a navel. Didn't do its homework there. But um, <laughs> yeah, and they, they made a skull and they had this, this discussion about, you know, what, what would happen to the skull openings and the, um, the, what it would mean for the, the jaw architecture. And the t it's toothless as well. They had all these arguments about why these things would happen. So there's lots of interesting thought went into these details, which are often glossed over or not known or forgotten about, it's not just a scaly lizard person, but that is your overriding impression, that this is the ancestor of the carnivorous visitors from V and David Icke's lizard man and the North Carolina, North Carolina or South Carolina, the scape or uh, swamp creature. You know, they all seem to, like, <laughs> go back to... Uh, the dinosauroid. Okay, we've gone on a long, smart dinosaur tangent here. We've gone away from the Dougal Dixon stuff. So, 
I've got a, there's a bunch of interesting stuff I want to talk about, talk to, to Dougal about when we do this state on stage thing. Because mm-hmm. so this is the 2018 edition. The the 1981 book has got the reed stilt on the cover, which is like a sort of heron like, uh, long legged, um, heron like uh, mustelid descendant. Yeah. Um, or or mustelid. Um, w- when this book came out. I've I've got a lot of you know a lot of literature from the early eighties like you know BBC wildlife magazines and I used to comb through New Scientist and stuff and you know this it was huge there was like TV shows there were like magazine interviews loads of radio shows loads of reviews in all different journals and everything it, it must have been quite a really busy time for him when he, he you know I, w- I want to talk to him about that you must have felt like you were in the centre of some huge you know developing story with um some people absolutely loving it and saying this was the best idea ever and others saying this is what a part of rubbish you know some people are actually slating it but i think overwhelmingly the, the 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 feeling was positive and it was written about by lots of people who you know well-known famous scientists i mean it's got uh, the introduction is written by desmond morris uh, one of the world's most famous zoologists written you know, a whole bunch of controversial books um the naked ape, body watching, cat watching, dog watching, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and off the back of after, yeah, and the, and the story about like you know, how he did it, like he he did he he illustrated. So he came he comes up with a whole world. He meant a whole world of like a hundred creatures. I forget exactly how many it is. I think it's around fifty actually, fifty sixty. And draws them all himself. Comes up with like biology, life cycle, their evolutionary, you know, bit of their their history and stuff does all these illustrations goes to a publisher i don't know how many publishers he went round because we didn't we didn't discuss that when we spoke about it i get the impression he just went straight to collins and um said i want to do this book and then yeah, all right then. and uh, so off he goes <laughs> <laughs> for some weird reason in the he il- he illustrated everything himself but in the actual published book this page here at the introduction that's the only page with his illustrations in it mm. everything else the publishers got a bunch of artists to produce artwork based on his images and i think in like half the cases that works really well but in the other half it doesn't and i don't want to be too mean but there's one artist in particular who illustrated a lot of stuff in that book and in the subsequent books who just is really just does things in a really weird way and uh, kind of ruins the look of it. But um, yeah, and then Dougal still got all the original artwork, and I'm like, whoa, dude, you should like, you know, you should do a whole book just of your artwork. Yeah. Plus, he also, you know, he made models, you know, little little scale models of some of the creatures, like say about I don't know, like 15 centimeters, 20 centimeters tall, and did like little stop motion movies with them. Yeah. Um, wow. So, so there's a whole. This is like a huge project. It's not just a guy sits down and types of, you know, sit down at his. What did you do in 1981? It wasn't even word processors back then. It was typewriters, wasn't it? I think you get a word processor. My grandmother had a computer. In 1981. I think so. Pretty close to that. Okay. It was a blue chip. Well, there you go. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, whatever. It's not just a guy sitting down at a keyboard and writing a quick 50,000 words. To go, no. to go. It's like this a huge project where he's done, he's like created a whole world. It's a big project. And um, 
it's successful enough that he's asked to do sequels. So he does The New Dinosaurs in 1988, which is, I think, fairly well regarded. I mean, it's, you know, there's criticisms of it out there. Um, yeah, and then Man After Man, and there's a whole story behind that one, which he he's disowned it. He doesn't doesn't like that one. Yeah. Because uh, it's a dis- disaster of a project for a couple of reasons. Yeah, I don't think I own that one. It's famously weird and, and freaky. Um, and then then you've just got, like, as I, as I say in the that Tetrabod Duology uh, interview with Asher, um, it's like there might be a long time where there's not much happening in speculative zoology, but when things come out, they're generally like quite popular and well received, and you know people say good things about them, and there's a, there's a, an appropriate amount of interest in the, in the relevant you know com- community. They seem to do fairly well, and that makes me think that there is this constant interest in the subject. So the newest book apart from this this new edition of Afterman the newest book is uh the more les animals de future which um uh it's well out of reach so i've forgotten the names of the authors but this uh, french language book which is i believe being translated into english which is computer generated animals that i don't know they live in like the land of dixonia or the dixonian era or something in the future and it's like a you know hypothetical speculative birds and all that kinds of other creatures oh and of course the future is wild the tv series mm. which oh dear oh, i forgot see I, i'm not i'm doing this without anything in front of me apart from the 2018 after man when was the when was the future is wild Future is Wild, for those of you who don't know, it's a television series that it looks like, it looks like um, somebody said, let's make a TV series based on After Man, and then, for various reasons, probably because the rights to After Man were owned at the time by, like, a big movie company, because they wanted to, they, they were plans to make a film, because they couldn't use the stuff from After Man, they said, okay, we can't use stuff from After Man, we have to come up with our own stuff, so they came up with their own creatures, um, and of course, Vicky Cools, one of the designers for the series and the creatures, gave a talk at TetsuCon, probably 2016 one, mm-hmm. 2015 or 2016 one, I can't remember. And um, yeah, yeah, she came up with a lot, of, a lot of the stuff, and it's sort of similar to the Aftermath Dougal Dixon stuff, but it's also quite different. Like it goes into the further, the far future where there's like no mammals left and there's world the world is ruled by like land squids <laughs> and giant predatory slime molds. Oh there are still fish, there are flying fish called flesh that uh, dominate the skies. But um yeah, that was I and mean, that was quite a successful series. That did pretty well and there's a couple of spin-offs of it. There's like a there's a weird CG thing made for kids. And there's some sort of educational program for kids. There's, a, there's still a we- an active website, I believe. Um, so I yeah. guess the question is, what's the point of all this? So, yeah, um, Dale Russell was fairly open initially about his motivations in many ways. You know, it was to talk about evolution and convergence, and as you found out, also his um, views about the progressiveness of evolution, the special place 
humans having he it. Kept, he kept that. He kept, he kept that, that on the download. Yeah, yeah. So but you okay. Up in interviews. In interviews, but that's you did say it in interviews. Um, so we know quite a bit about that. What about uh, Dougal Dixon's motivations for doing this? What was he? Yeah, planning on doing. Was um, this an art project? Was this a? Was it the spark? Conversations about evolution, both? Mm, yeah, all of the above is the answer. As in, like, came up with a good idea that hadn't really been done before, and it's a way to, you know, become a successful author designer, which clearly, it clearly works, so it's like, well done. In terms of, like, an educational outreach thing, yes, it can be considered that as well, because he's always said that part of the justification for this project is that it's, talking about real evolution using hypothetical examples. So if you actually read After Man, in particular, the biogeographical sections that start each section, there's a section because it's divided into like, you know, the, the different continental regions. It talks about the shape of the... Actually, no, it doesn't. Maybe it's by habitat. Whatever. So coniferous forest, and it talks about the shape of the world 50 million years in the future. Mm-hmm. And... It's actually based on um, what we really do think will happen. He didn't just, you know, make up some nonsense. So, like, can you see Africa? You've got the the eastern uh, edge of Antar- uh, Africa. Sorry, the, re- the eastern edge of Africa is split off as a continent called Lemuria. Well, that's based on the idea. Well, not based on, based on idea. It's based on observations that there's a the, the rifting is tearing that section away. Obviously, Africa's moving further north. The Mediterranean will close. Africa will join with Eurasia. Australasia is also moving north and would eventually collide with Asia. You know that kind of stuff. So, and that's all discussed in these opening sections. And it also says what it will mean for you know the distribution of habitats and therefore the distribution of organisms uh, so so that is like you are actually reading something that's you know, fun imaginary animals but you're also learning something about what's what we think is going to happen why we think that's going to happen because it also couches it within you know what we understand about continental movement and climate change and that kind of stuff <coughs> excuse me um and he does the same in the new dinosaurs He's, he's talking about hypothetical examples are being used to illustrate real processes. Mm-hmm. So there is an is an educational component to it. But I still wouldn't say that that justifies why he was doing it or why anyone does speculative evolution. Yeah. Speculative zoology. I think the, the, the bottom line is because it's fun. It is entertaining. And it's, uh, you know, it's part of it's it's part of the entertainment industry. Which is which is fine, you know. I mean, Christ, how much money is spent on music and films? You know, nobody says, "Why do you do that?" We do it because people enjoy it, and uh, you can't have stuff to enjoy if you don't have people creating it. Yeah, and I guess what is interesting about it is why it's enjoyable, why it's interesting, why it's entertainment, right? And I think in Dougal Dixon's case and and others as well, it's something about. And we get these a lot in cash for questions. Why didn't this evolve into this or this mm. happen to that? It's a way of exploring why things happen rather than what did happen. So we look at, you know, it's easy to fall into the trap in fossil record of just sort of catalog- cataloging what we think did happen rather than why things yeah. happened, right? It's very difficult to see 
when something's happened, the counterfactual, the what what were the processes, what else could have happened? And I think that's what speculative zoology is sort of about, sort of posing questions about what are the causes and what could have what could be different, right? Mm, mm. Also, and this is what I always find funny about sort of future evolution things or alternative evolution things, is that we can't predict this stuff. It is quite chaotic. You know, anything that's going to be produced is going to certainly be wrong, right? Mm. <laughs> it's not like it's a prediction. It's just a sort of a vision of something that could be. It's not a... Because the processes of biological evolution are not predictable in terms of evolutionary direction. There is no direction as mm. far as we understand um, but that's also been sort of countered in a lot of it, you know, that we've got this aspect of convergent evolution, which Russell takes to an extreme, but um, Dougal Dixon does it as well, right? The uh, alternative dinosaurs, a lot of them look a lot like mammals we have around. Yeah, that's that's the main weakness of the new dinosaurs. Um now, I think they're too specific, obviously, but are they necess- is it necessarily wrong? I guess that's the question. I think, yeah, I, mean, I think, and in cases, yes, it is. Because it doesn't, because to make these predictions, you should have worked on the, your, like, the bedrock for your speculation should be the, uh, the like the organism that's the actual ancestor. Whereas, ha, ha, let me let me explain this. So, look for example, South America in the new dinosaurs. Hmm. Forget about modern South America. Think of South America like say a couple of million years ago before like megafauna extinction. South America a couple of million years ago had like saber toothed cats and glyptodonts and you know that 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 assemblage that megafauna. So. The South America of the new dinosaurs has got like a saber-toothed theropod. It's got like a <laughs> glyptodon-like giant armor-plated sauropod, for example, and it's got a bunch of other things as well. Whereas I'm thinking that if you actually looked at the the dinosaurs and other animals that were in South America at the end of the Cretaceous, do they look to you like they were becoming glyptodon-like or becoming saber-toothed? No, they're doing their own wholly different set of things. So you should speculate based on okay we've got you know a set of titanosaurs that look like they're experimenting with this kind of you know body shape and association with this particular habitat and you've got theropods that are doing this sort of thing blah 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 blah, blah right uh, so i think it's too obvious that in cases the convergence was forced by just getting things to match what you think is is likely yeah and i guess you could argue that what is predictable are let's say all the geology and um, the climate, it all went the same way that it did, right? Mm. Mm. How would dinosaurs react to that versus mammals? And yeah. I think it's pretty unlikely that dinosaurs react to these things by evolving saber teeth, right? It's yeah. um, They're going to solve many of the same problems but they've got their own anatomical solutions to these things right yeah yeah that, and that is one of the, the plus the primary criticism of the new dinosaurs greg paul published this review um i've said a few things about it over the years i'm, I'm sure other uh, dinosaur specialists have as well 
it, where it's obvious that you weren't basing it on what we actually know you know of the real faunas so like so yeah like australia and the new dinosaurs have got like a kangaroo like dinosaur and a dingo like dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> and asia has got like a, a panda bear type dinosaur and a hornbill type dinosaur and so on and so forth and it's like yeah if you actually look at the actual animals but that maybe um, that's misunderstanding the the basis for the project so, well, like you said, know, is it, yeah. yeah, should we be looking at like, okay, is this the most plausible evolution of dinosaurs since then? Or should we be looking at it? What if these animals were dinosaurs? What would they look like? Right? What's, the, asked, what's the sort of the closest thing you could get and that be a dinosaur? Yeah, we, and that is exactly what he did. I asked him that. Like, uh, one of his animals is a, a gigantic super a scavenger tyrannosaur called the gourmand and i said why did you you know the, the whole the whole idea of you know tyrannosaurs being dedicated scavengers uh, is problematic in fact it's wrong and the idea that they would evolve to be even bigger and even more specialized scavengers is therefore problematic and isn't just problematic based on what we understand about tyrannosaurs but you know there's problems with it for energetic and ecological reasons as as is as is fairly well known and he said no you have to understand that this was done to illustrate the process of evolution using hypothetical examples so it's almost like don't worry too much about the actual animals the actual specific animals the specific lineages mm. that i'm talking about here there's more to do with you're getting people to understand people that maybe haven't even considered this before it's like oh yeah animals can become bigger over time and if an animal were to become a more specialized scavenger maybe this would happen and maybe this would happen and maybe this would happen and i think if you yeah if you were introducing that to a new audience that is a useful thing to do just get people thinking about the fact that you know the basics of how evolution works that's that's not that's not a bad thing to do that's a good thing to do yeah on and the other hand i do think end up with uh, well, animals they're kind of familiar with sorry go ahead yeah well i was just going to say that on the other hand that the the, the counter argument to that is of course i think 95 percent of people that pick up these books are pr- probably already pretty familiar with the basics of you know the basics of the the process of evolution yeah, maybe. A lot of kids are picking up the books, right? I did mm. when I was mm. pretty young. I remember it being around. I was probably only six or seven when I started looking at them and thinking about them. Yeah. And I don't think I had a very good understanding of evolution. Don't you? Six <laughs> or seven, right? I think it was part of what got me thinking about evolution and how it works. So I do think that's defensible. And I think if you... um. Pick animals people are already familiar with in a way and you take another group of animals and say, well, how would you get there from there to here and that sort of thing? I do think that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's sort of a hook for people. Yeah. Because if you just show people a whole bunch of unfamiliar dinosaurs, Mm. well, a lot of people are going to (laughs) go, so these aren't (laughs) real, huh? Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Good one. Yeah. yeah. Nice one, nerds. Um. <laughs> so when when did you discover, when did you first see these books? Uh, well, I'm not sure when I actually saw the specific ones, but I remember Dougal Dixon's books just being in my house forever. So Really? Yeah. Wow. Huh. I mean, when was when was uh Afterman published? 81, did you say? 81. The year I was born. So I think my Mother or someone bought it probably then and just always in my house. Wow, you lucky intellectual. <laughs> I grew up in a house with a lot of books. 
More books yeah, I, than you, Darren. Yeah. Which well, is why I, I can't have so many books anymore. It's a bit traumatizing. Um, Our whole life res- revolved around the books and where we were going to put the books and, oh my God, the books. I, I grew up in a working class family where books were pretty much, you know, like, I don't know. It's like my mum was always trying to tell me not to waste my money on books just wouldn't and wouldn't buy books for me. Well, look, Darren, to be honest, most of these books were murder mysteries. It wasn't. Yeah, my, it was like my, a lot of trashy novels, but there was also a lot of good stuff in there. I think my mother just buy like boxes of books at secondhand places and stuff like this. It wasn't like she was going wow. and buying new books all the time. So there's there's a long, long list of books that to me now are like essential cornerstones for a given subject. Yeah. A long, long list of them. And as I have said before on Tetrapods Audio, I say this a lot in my writings, I grew up most of my life hearing about these books and never seeing them. Never, I, I didn't have any access to them at all. You know, my li- I, I lived in libraries as a kid and libraries didn't have them. Bookshops didn't have them. I didn't have the money to... I could, there's no way I could get them myself and I couldn't get anyone to get them for me. So... I knew about these books from reading about them in magazines and in other books. So like the the new so after man to me was like a legendary book that one day i might get to see it and i just never saw it. I, I was familiar with it because i inherited years and years and years of bbc wildlife magazines from a friend who uh gave them to me i went to a um i went to like a, a uh, it's a long and boring story, a tangent, but I'm, I'm through a bursary and through doing well in writing exams, I got into a school full of rich people, even though I don't come from a rich family. And they all come from like giant swanky homes. And so someone who had like a whole run of BBC Wildlife that his parents had bought for him as a kid and he just didn't want them anymore. So I took them, boxes and boxes and boxes of them. And there's the ones from the early 1980s have got, you know, this fantastic BBC World, uh, uh, Dougal Dixon interview with it. Loads about Art Man. It's like, holy crap, this thing's amazing. And when I got uh, David Lambert's book, the, the Dinosaur Data Book in, I think, that's 1990. Mm-hmm. That's got a section in there on the new dinosaurs, and I thought, "Wow, this is this stuff is crazy." And again, I magazines over the years, the the Orbis Dinosaur Magazine, which I worked in news agents during my teenage years, so I got to see like you know loads of stuff in magazines of various kinds, um, and yes, yeah, saw lots of coverage of the new dinosaurs. And again, that was like a these were mythical things for me. So I've I've only seen them, only got to know them as a proper adult. So, uh, yeah. That's funny, because I remember these things being in the library as well. No, they weren't where I where I lived. Where I... I guess I got pretty lucky with my school library. So there were lots of dinosaurs yeah. books like this. I was, um, yeah. There you go. Crazy rich intellectual Australia. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, I, I do remember seeing, I saw Man After Man, I remember seeing it as a brand new book in a bookshop. I couldn't buy it at the time. I didn't have any money. Um, and of course, that's the one that Dougal doesn't like to talk about because of its because uh, of its weird weird history. Which uh, I, I I'm not I, I'm not I, I shouldn't talk about it. I'm not allowed to talk about it. But it's but you know it's, just don't. But if anyone wants to, no, no no I won't say that I won't say that. But, <laughs> so I remember seeing that, and I think that was I think that was 1989 possibly. But then I didn't see the others until I actually I first saw the new dinosaurs 
uh, at an SVP meeting in like 2000, I don't know, the early 2000s or late 90s. I can't remember now. And um, yeah, bought it there. So did you not have like a large library you could go to? Yeah, well, not large, but a few fairly decent libraries. But, I, know, I know, so I still live in Southampton. I still live in the same place. Yeah. And I know all the libraries around me. There's the big one in the city centre and there's two largish local ones near me. They have never had any of the Dougal Dixon books. That's interesting. Never, I think I was life. a bit spoilt in that Canberra, where I grew up, is, I think it's a similar size to Southampton. But because it's the capital, it's got a lot of the large collections in it. And so they've got the National Library there. And it's so big that you can find pretty much anything. And so Mm. any books that I wanted to see and couldn't find in my house (laughs) or at the library, I could go there and get it. And that's how I um, photocopied the entirety of Predatory Dinosaurs of the World. Yeah, and Uh, I'm I'm getting the the alert box. Yeah, you're screwed. Well, maybe we should, should we stop there? Uh, just cut it or should we yeah I'll do a um, little thing I might as well just say it now okay so Darren we've lost Darren but uh, follow us on Patreon follow us on Patreon oh dear okay so follow Darren on Twitter at there is no try only do that's wrong oh well (laughs) at Tetzoo uh, you can find the podcast, as you know, at tetsu.com, where you can find links to the Patreon. Support us on Patreon, please. Uh, and I think that'll do. Convention. Good point. Um, yep. So, TetsuCon this year is the 6th and 7th of October. You can book tet- you can book tickets at tetsu.com. I've got, like, a whole heap of speakers um, paleo workshop, uh, drinks reception, dinner, the whole biz. So, book your tickets. All right. I'm going to do. Bye!